0: day everybody good day welcome to from the point i'm danny lambert i'm your host and just let me start by saying it's really exciting to be here with you to share what i hope is going to be the first of many episodes of this podcast so let's just start out and say why we're here what i'm thinking so like a lot of you out there i've discovered some free extra time lately i wonder why i think everybody knows why and so i've obviously been inside my house like most of everybody else out there with a little extra time on my hands. As we know, some of us have decided to do constructive things, while other of us, well, there just seems to be no shortage of people creating doc and documenting their creative time killers out there. I've always been a big reader, even before all this kicked off. Voracious reader. Uh, but it seems that just in the last couple of months, I've really increased probably about tenfold, just out of pure necessity. Adding the fact that Months ago, we didn't even have hockey on TV, even though we just got completed with what was a very exciting Stanley Cup final. Um, Back in, say, March and May, I I found myself really wanting to up my consumption of hockey but not having an outlet to do it. So um, I leaned a ton on uh, books to learn about the best sport on Earth. And it really did quench my search for hockey facts and it really helped me understand a lot of why things are uh, the way they are in the game today. Um, so I mean from biographies to autobiographies some of the some of the greatest players and then uh, even some books on how to interpret hockey stats and apply them. It's been an awesome journey and something that I really wanted to share with everyone out there who was willing to listen and just needed suggestions on how to maybe you know get smarter on hockey and maybe a few other books and things to check out it seems that there's a lot of podcasts out there right now i mean that's obvious you you see that um, and most of them revolve around current hockey issues and and things like that um, i'm not really looking to do that here uh, what i really want to do is just look at some of the more the historical things the facts uh, and, uh, behind the sport and just kind of you know get an outlet for everybody so that we can discuss a little bit more about not necessarily uh, contentious things, but more things that are accepted and facts that help uh, make us, uh, get us to where we are in the hockey story today. So it's real simple. And the way we're going to do it is uh, every week, just take a look at a book, hockey book, and examine it, talk about it, say what's, uh, what it's about, what we like about it, what we don't like about it. And uh, take some of the big points of the book and give them a bit of a drill down. My hope is that we can talk a lot about historical and, like I said, even some more near-term events in hockey and not just be sensational about it. Talk about the facts for the most part. Um, some interpretations, I mean, like any other history, there's interpretations out there, but for the most part, we're just going to stick to the facts um, and be as positive as being as uh, we can be, because I think that's another thing that's really missing from society and in general these days. And just learn a ton through the journey of the book. So the format will be just like any other hockey game. Uh, I want to start with uh, a warm-up, three periods, an overtime if we need to, uh, depending on the book, and a little bit of post-game commentary just to wrap everything up. So the warm-up will be time where we talk about the general gist of the book. What is it about how is it written and then any other background information the three periods will consist of three different specific topics from the book that warrant further examination and if we need more of a discussion in the form of a fourth topic we'll go to an overtime just to get a little bit more uh, more in after all that's done in the post game wrap up we'll uh, have a discussion and give opinions on the book and recommendations to the reader Really, in the end, it's all about talking some hockey, getting some good book recommendations out to all of you out there, and just having fun while we do it. So without further delay, let's start our first book, um, one that I'm really excited about and one that I think every hockey fan needs to read at some point in their life, and uh, that's Mr. Hockey, the Autobiography of Gordie Howe.
1: Howe The greatest of them all, the greatest of them all, yes, the greatest of them all. You can have your choice of all the rest, if you're a fan, you've got the very best. Laurel, Saskatchewan, his story all began. It didn't take him long to be known about the land. He's all-star right winger of the NHL today. Hockey fans from everywhere just love to see how to play. He-
0: so that little ditty was from Big Bob and the Dollars singing Gordie Howe is the Greatest of Them All, a single recorded in 1963. It's a great song. You gotta admit, especially for the subject that we're talking about. So, welcome to the warm up. So, before Gretzky, the greatest to ever put skates on was Gordie Howe. That seems to be the conventional wisdom. But once you hear Gordie's story, you start to realize that there was no one ever like Gordie Howe, and there will never be anyone like him ever again. Also, add to that, whenever Gretzky is asked, who his favorite hockey hero is, he'll answer very quickly, without a doubt, it was Gordie Howe. I mean, after all, until junior hockey, the great one wore number nine in homage to Gordie Howe, had to change it to 99. So when you really think about it, that 99 is 100% a uh, tribute to his hockey hero. It says a lot if the consensus uh, greatest hockey player ever thinks that Gordie was the best player ever. So, Mr. Hockey is Gordy's story told by, told by Gordy. So it's raw and true to life, and it's really just a fun book. When you read the book, you find a very down-to-earth dialogue that sort of draws you in and keeps the pages turning very easily. Also, overall, it's a quick read. It's only 229 pages. The foreword is written by Bobby Orr. That's a total bonus. And then the afterword is uh, written by Gordy's kids. It's worth mentioning that in most books, it seems like you can really skip those parts and save yourself some time and you really wouldn't have missed anything about the book. But take it from me, you will miss out on something uh, If, and some great perspective on Gordy's life if you skip either the uh, the, the preface or the afterword on this one. The afterword in this book is actually probably one of my favorites in any book I've ever read because of the way it just puts a bow on the whole thing and as his kids outright say in the end, their father was truly a great man. Um, but I'll let you read the book and figure out exactly what they had to say about him. Uh, Gordy's story is really a great way to get to know hockey history too, uh, especially from the 1940s when he started uh, in, all the way up into the 80s, and do it in a very quick manner. From his, st- he started out in the OHA in the final years of World War II and then navigating the NHL in the post-war period All the way to 1971. uh, You can see where he grew into the legend that he did through all the epic battles he had with some of the really greats of the day in of the NHL for that matter. Also you get a glimpse into how the Red Wings at the time were built into what many consider to be one of the best teams ever in the 1950s uh, led by the famous production line of Howe, Lindsay, and Sid Abel and how that uh, Basically, that line dominated the NHL and is remembered as one of the best ever. I also really enjoyed hearing about some of the scoring races that he had um, with like Rocket Richard, and then some of the crazy battles that he would have uh, with some of the really you know, famous hockey names, taking him into the corners and just uh, abusing him and, and doing what Gordie Howe was famous for doing, uh, not being intimidated and doing the intimidation himself then you add into all that great NHL knowledge and facts that come along with this. You got Gordy's stories, and they're just amazing. They 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 take the stats and they put something behind it. And then, even if that wasn't enough, uh, you get to learn about his entry into the WHA with the uh, Houston Arrows with his sons, Mark and Marty, in 1973 when he was 45. I can't imagine that. Just to let you know, I'm 42. I couldn't imagine starting a, a hockey career right now. Uh, That part of the book we'll talk over more in detail in the third period, though. Uh, But the idea that he could make that move at 45 and be a no-kidding producer in the WHA and become the league MVP in 1972 for the Arrows, it's just nothing short of amazing. And it really highlights uh, what the book is all about and what his life was all about. Uh, Just being an amazing person who was gifted with uh, this... Tremendous love and ability to play hockey. Personally, for me, I really enjoyed uh, reading about not only all the hockey stuff, but even still, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that uh, reading about his early days in in Saskatchewan were amazing. What I felt like he did a very good job of doing with his language and descriptions and everything was uh, describing what life and depression era Saskatoon was like. Uh, to the point where you start to really picture what all these places look like, like uh, what his old childhood house looked like, like the different places that he worked in, and uh, you know the street lamps and stuff. Where he ended up uh, learning how to play, uh, just really cool, really cool A glimpse into another world, really. And as I said earlier, I'll, I'll I just want to really save most of my final praises and critique for the post game, but for now I think it's time that we really get into the game and drop the puck on period number one.
2: Gordie Howe was a gentleman off the ice, but a tenacious talent on it. It all began for Mr. Hockey when he made his debut with the Detroit Red Wings in 1946. The 18 year old was surprised to hear his name called to start his first game. Jack Adams gets on bench,
3: and when before we all come to the bench, and he says, Okay, Abel, Lindsay, and Howe. I'm like, God. <laughs> but I jumped over, it and that was my start. Howe scored
2: in his first game, and immediately the production line was born. We all had talent. When he put us together, it was just a case. The machine would be like starting an engine, and everything started to click. The production line was rolling along until the opening game of the 1950 playoffs. While attempting to land a check, Howe suffered a near-fatal fracture in his skull. He was told he might never play again. The Red Wings went on to win the Stanley Cup in 1950 without Howe, though he recovered and
3: returned the next season. Did it, Tell him he's not gonna play hockey again after nearly dying, and he comes back and he plays like nothing ever happened. And the Howe takes his
2: Over the next five seasons, he won four consecutive scoring titles, two Hart
3: trophies, and three Stanley Cups. He was everything. And of course, on top of that, he was the best fighter. He put fear in the hearts of opponents because he was always gonna get even.
2: Don't ever get him dirty because look out because he might not get you tonight, he might not get you next game, but he'll get you. Gordie Howe was an offensive talent and an intimidating physical presence, but is perhaps most renowned for his durability his professional hockey career spanned 33 years. Every time we used to go to training camp, Gordy always worried about making the team.
3: Get rid of the butterflies, believe it or not. I still get
0: them, I get them worse than I used to. Uh, all the guys used to laugh at him. How, what the heck are you talking about? So, wow, that was pretty cool. That was um, interviews in, from Gordy and some of the other players that he played with from the NHL's uh, 100 best players during the NHL Centennial. Um, so it was kind of neat to add in there, you know, just how impactful Gordy was, uh, get it from some words from his mouth and then from some of the other mouths uh, that, uh, of the players that he played with, including the late great Ted Lindsay, who was uh, his line mate for so long on that uh, really awesome and famous production line. So welcome to the first period. When you hear the name Gordy Howe, what team comes to mind? Without a doubt, it should be the Detroit Red Wings. Sure, you can say the Houston Arrows or the New England slash Hartford Whalers, but none were as dominant a team or key to the legend of uh, what Gordie Howe would become as the Red Wings, and then more specifically, the Red Wings of the 1950s. So for the first period discussion, I wanted to delve into just how dominant those 1950s Red Wings teams were, and what the backstories of those years from Howe's perspective and focus in on the uh, people and circumstances who helped Howe build what some call to be one of the best teams in NHL history, if not the best. Looking at the original six era in the NHL, one thing really stands out really quickly. Not all the six teams were equal, surprise. And furthermore, uh, usually with few exceptions, the top three teams in the league year in and year out were the Canadians, Maple Leafs, and Red Wings. Now, that had a lot to do with who was running the different teams and the associated advantages that came with those personalities and even the markets that those teams inhabited. For the Red Wings, that personality was Jack Adams. For 36 years, Jack Adams was the man running the Red Wings and roles as uh, coach and GM and even as coach and GM at the same time. Um, He did that for 36 years all total uh, and 15 years as coach total. Um, they were those 36 years that he did have as GM are the longest in NHL history. And until Mike Babcock caught up to him, he was the winningest coach in Red Wings history as well. Perhaps the biggest thing that Adams did to build the Red Wings in the 1950s was to build the farm system that developed Howe and a lot of the other greats that inhabited the Red Wings uh, starting in the 1940s, the late 1940s. Gordy's stories of Adams in the book are just pure gold. They're awesome. Uh, He paints the picture of a savvy, no-holds-barred, brash, old-school hockey figure who ruled the Red Wings with an iron fist, Uh, to include even Mr. Hockey, who was uh, a pretty strong-willed individual himself. Howe relays so many instances of Adams' attempted control of the team, and they're just awesome. To think, okay, you could get away with that in 1950, but uh, probably not today. So some of the examples were how Howe talks about how Adams tried to make a policy of no alcohol period during the season. He also loved to explain how the Red Wings broke that many, many, many times. And then uh, he even suggested that, uh, he even told that uh, Adams suggested that his players, even the married ones, abstain from sex during the uh, hockey season. Go figure. I'm pretty sure that one wasn't followed either. But you probably sit there and wonder, how was he able to do that? The best explanation about why Adams was able to do that was simple according to Howe. It was the fact that in the post-World War II era in the of the NHL, there was a surplus of talent due to returning players from the war mixed in with the replacements that had gotten pretty good while they were gone. Um, and just a strong will to win by every team, mix all that together, you've only got six teams. So you had to um, you had to just count your blessings because it was hard to get a spot in the NHL back then. So you could see where a player would have to bow to just about any demands, including Jack Adams' crazy ones, uh, because they wanted to play. Still, in spite of all of his control uh, efforts and uh, outrageous temper, uh, in 1950, uh, Jack Adams decided it was time to just become the GM only, and then he was replaced by, behind the bench by Tommy Ivan. So I think that was one of the bigger catalysts to where you had the talent of the players and now I think uh, replacement of coach, and it worked out to be great because, uh, as you'll see, the players loved playing for Tommy Ivan a lot more than they did for Jack Adams, but Jack Adams was able to take a step back use his really strong hockey acumen and business acumen to run the team and it just made for a extremely extremely uh, great formula to of success so much so that in that decade the red wings went to five stanley cup finals winning all but one uh, one loss in 1956 to the canadians who also had a pretty darn good lineup uh, chock full of future hall of famers like rocket richard i feel in my opinion, I feel it was a mix of pure work ethic and then talent top-to-bottom leadership uh, that was built in Detroit uh, to change and the change to the more friendly Tommy Ivan uh, that really made for the success that we had. Uh, I'd also add in too that uh, they just kind of have an effect that happens on hockey teams. Uh, the best way to to describe it to me as I'll call it the Herb Brooks effect, where the players hated Adam so much that they just wanted to really show him, hey, all those things that you're saying about us, derogatory things that you're saying about us to, to get us fired up, we're not that team. We're actually really good, and we're going to show you, and uh, they did. And the core of all that success was obviously Gordy. But there's a few more pieces that uh, are worth mentioning, especially uh, because they directly impacted Gordy success, and that was his linemates on the famous production line. Playing with Ted Lindsay and Sid Abel, who was later replaced by Alex Delvacchio after the 51-52 season, it was just pure magic from the beginning. The combination of sp- the speed and size of Howe and Lindsay was too much for opposing teams. Basically, the formula was pretty simple. How and Lindsey, as the wingers, perfected the dump in play. It would overpower whoever dared go into the corner against them. And after that, they would pass the trailing Abel or Del Vecchio or shoot themselves. This was so effective in the uh, 49-50 season that the production line finished 1-2-3 in league scoring, a feat that has not been accomplished since has not been accomplished since, as the Wings cruised to a cup win, so they were the only line ever to go 1-2-3 in NHL scoring, uh, led by Gordy, of course. Gordy also dominated the decade in his individual achievements in the 1950s. He won the Art Ross Trophy four times to include three straight from 51 to 54 as score the NHL scoring leader. He was a first-team all-star in six of the 10 seasons of the 1950s and won the Hart Trophy four times that decade. So why did I decide to uh, lead off with Howe on the Red Wings in the 1950s? Simple. Because while Gordie Howe was awesome in every decade he played, the 1950s were the one, that was the decade that put him on the map. Those Red Wing teams were what made him famous and made him the legend that would continue his lore for 20 years after that, after the end of the 1950s to the end of his NHL career. Basically, uh, just before the halfway mark of, of his playing time, Mister Gordy was Mr. Hockey. Everybody knew him as that. And I think that's quite telling that by the end of the 1950s, he's already considered to be the best player in the league and probably the best player ever. Sounds a lot like uh, what Gretzky went through, obviously, but uh, I also think that Gordy showed so much dominance that he earned his fame that early. That's that's amazing. Um, and it also made his life a little bit easier, but yet tougher um, for many reasons. So as you'll see in period two, what I want to discuss is how life would get more complicated for Gordy as the business of hockey started to become too much professionally and in some cases, personally, towards the end of his Red Wings career. You described your play <clears throat> as rough and
3: crazy. Now, I'm curious, what is the difference? <laughs> well, it's, uh, roughness, you can you can bang people around. Even rough, you can con- be in conversation with somebody. Um, for instance, some of the guys I respected and, and knew as boyhood idols, or, and especially in my early days, I'd yell, look out, and then I'd hit them. If I didn't like him, I'd yell out when I hit him. <laughs> so right. It was... Uh, Dirtiness is the the little extra. You can hit somebody, and uh, I was accused of elbowing. This is no excuse, it's all gone by. But I have very sloped shoulders, so in in order to avoid hitting my head all the time, I'd put my arm up in this manner and take the blow with the elbow, but at my chest level. And then at impact, it would fly out. The elbowing was done with anybody back here who was holding my stick, or had it around my, uh, his stick around my belly. I'd just pull his stick forward and give him a little shot so he'd release it and that way if they get enough hits in the head they would uh, not use that particular tactic on me and uh, I always felt my stick was my tools and somebody always put their hands on it I didn't like that and So,
0: so that was a interview with Gordy um, that I think is uh, really important to listen to and adds a lot of elements to the myth and legend of how he used to play I mean not only is it fun just to hear about how he used to elbow guys for touching his stick because he felt it to be such a sacred piece of his trade. Um, I also found it really cool that it basically described, uh, to everyone how tough he was in that the fact that here it is, you've got a guy who's the league's leading scorer in uh, many years, but he's also the toughest guy in the league. That's a complete package that you're never going to see again, uh, in that domination on both sides of the, uh, offensive and physical side of the puck. So, um that's why gordy was so good and that's why he's always considered to be one of the best so welcome to the second period dropping the puck on the uh, second frame i want to talk a little bit about uh the way nhl salaries were and how that affected how back in the old uh, nhl before uh, the 1970s or well yeah before in, in the early 1970s as you know salaries in today's nhl are huge and often seem like the players are getting more than their fair share of the pie. Even with the salary cap, I mean, I think we can all admit that uh, player salaries grow exponentially every year, and you sometimes wonder what justifies those numbers. Some people, we, yeah, obviously, they deserve to, they're very good at their craft and they deserve what they get. Um, others, not so much. But as you also know, it wasn't always like that. Uh, for players in Gordie Howe's NHL, it was with all, almost without exception, a system that was clearly slanted towards the owner and the team coming out on top of any labor situation or dispute. For lack of a better term, the deck was always stacked against the player. In those days, there was no free agency, hadn't even been thought of just yet, uh, even though um, players probably dreamed of being able to sign with teams after their different teams after their uh, contracts were up. The concept of free agency as we know it today was not even anywhere near uh, in play. And basically the way the system worked was the teams owned the rights of any player from day one uh, when they signed with them with the use of what they called the reserve clause in their contracts. The only leverage a player ever had in contract negotiations was that they could hold out at the expiration of their contract or demand a trade and negotiate with their team that they got traded to for a new contract. A player could also be unconditionally released, but this wasn't really used that much because why release a player just to go to another team in a small six-team league, possibly change the balance of power inside the league when all you need to do is make them languish uh, and then eventually they'll break to your demands because, well, they want to play and they have no legal recourse to uh, go to another team at that point. This is something that Gordy knew all too well. And as he adds himself in the book, the playing field was, quote, tilted and that's exactly the way the league liked it. In Gordy's words uh, from the book, he describes a system whereby, as he says, the players didn't have much of a frame of reference. Contractually, we were obligated to stay quiet about our salaries, even when talking to our teammates. This gave the owners a big leg up, and they knew it. They, they turned it into such an ingrained part of the league's culture that players just accepted the idea that discussing salaries was off-limits. I probably have less to complain about than most. Since I was one of the better players in the game, Mr. Adams had a vested interest in keeping me happy. I wish I'd made it harder for him. But at my core, I was still just grateful to be playing hockey for a living. Talking about money is also uncomfortable for a lot of people, and I was no exception. I think that Mr. Adams was aware of that little piece of social psychology and used it to his advantage. If I was happy to get out of his office as quickly as possible, he wasn't going to stop me. The owners, unlike the players, understood the power of information. When I sat down at the table with Mr. Adams, he had all of it and I had none. When he assured me I'd be the best-paid player on the Red Wings, and probably the highest-paid player in the NHL, I didn't have any reason not to believe him. He didn't know exactly what the other teams were paying their players, so he claimed, but he promised he would always do his best to ensure that my salary reflected my stature in the league. It seemed fair to me. Multi-year contracts didn't exist at that point, So at the end of training camp, every year I'd sit down in his office and we'd come up with a new one-year deal. Most seasons he'd offered me $1,000 more than my previous salary, and I'd sign. He'd also included bonuses and incentives, which made some sense to my way of thinking. I figured that if I had a good season, it would mean that the team would succeed as well. One year, I think it was 1952, I basically doubled my salary through bonuses. I took home the Hart Trophy and the scoring title and was named to the All-Star Team, and we won the Stanley Cup. That total haul came to an additional $9,000 or so. To my dismay, I've since realized that I was far too trusting of management in those days. As you can see, Hal looks back at his contract dealings from back then. With the benefit of hindsight and understands that he probably was taken advantage of because of his good nature and work ethic. That's kind of sad when you think about it because that's really the best parts of Hal's personality and it ended up costing him money but still the system was stacked against him. What was he really supposed to do? The players in an effort to try to change this playing field uh, in the 1950s started to try to organize a union led by veteran players and steered by Howe's uh, line mate, Ted Lindsay. The owners were not happy, of course, and they did what they could to actively break up the union. GMs like Jack Adams decided to basically try to break everything up by punishing the players involved. And in the case of the Wings, they moved Lindsay and Netminder Glenn, Glenn Hall to Chicago in a very lopsided deal that is seen as retribution for Lindsay's foray into uh, labor organizing. Um, just to give you a little insight into that, the Blackhawks were always considered to be one of the lower uh, tier teams in the league. Like I said, with only six, but still uh, considered to be at the bottom of the league. So it was considered to be sort of a step down for Lindsay, and many consider that trade to be one of the worst trades ever in NHL history just to give you a, a little bit of a foray into or a little bit of thought into why that happened and what that exactly meant. So in the face of legal actions and reprisals by owners and some of the small concessions that the owners actually did give, uh, the union decided they would go ahead and disband at that point because they didn't want any more trouble. How in the book, Basically talks about this and says that he sort of regrets not being more of an active participant. But as he says, he, his heart just wasn't in it at the time. And he just really wanted to play hockey. And I think that's understandable. Um, you know, uh, or being a labor organizer and trying to play hockey at this point, especially when you know that the, the league is against it, is, it, it's a tough thing to do. As a side note, at this point in the book, Gordy also takes a moment to talk about his relationship with uh, Ted Lindsay, um, which he describes their friendship, which was once strong uh, from the beginning of their playing days, as starting to deteriorate this uh, about this time uh, before Lindsay's exit to the Blackhawks. This part kind of struck me as really significant really from the book because It was a short because it was really short and it seems to lament the loss of such a great friendship uh, to what he calls uh, some issue. What he calls out as some issues with their business relationship and some careless talk behind his back. Um, I just read that part and I thought that this was something that Gordy was not happy about and uh, wish was different even up until the end of his life. So um, definitely something to clue into when you read the book. But back to the labor issue, it would come full circle into uh, Howe's personal kitchen about a decade later when the arrangement with the Red Wings had worked out for almost all of Howe's career, saw a big crack form towards the end of the 1960s when he found out the Wings had not exactly been uh, truthful with him about his pay situation and standing on the team salary-wise. When Bobby Bond was traded to the team before the 1968-69 season, he and Gordy had a conversation about how much Bobby was making. Uh, Bond informed Gordy that he was making, in fact, more than him by a lot, which led Gordy to find out that defenseman Carl Brewer was also making more money than him. So not only was he underpaid, he was, he was not the highest paid player on the Red Wings as he had been promised by the organization. As Howe describes it, that uh, in the book, it made him steaming mad. Clearly, this had been going on for years, meaning that I had left Lord knows how much money on the table. I talked to Bruce Norris, who became the GM at that time, and asked my salary be raised to $100,000 for the season. When he agreed to it straight away, I immediately knew that everything Bobby was telling me was on the mark. In retrospect, I should have asked for $150,000. I don't like to think about how much my family lost out on over the years because of the trust I put in management. It was more than just the money, however. I felt betrayed. The team liked to talk about how the organization was like a family, but in that moment it sure didn't feel like it. That's a heavy statement on how he felt later late in his career towards a team that he considered to be his family. I think that Looking at his salary situation, his overall age, and what led Howe to uh, make his first retirement, is really what made Howe decide to do his first retirement in 1970 and 71. At that point, um, as we all know, sometimes with players and management, if there's something that is perceived as a slight, uh, sometimes it's just never reconciled. So that became the case with Gordy. He was unable to I don't think he was able to really reconcile that he had been lied to for that many years, and so he decided to retire. So looking at his retirement in 70 and 71, you you find a player still that was still really good. Um, Gordy in 68 and 69 posted 103 points. He got 71 in 69 and 70, and then 52 in 70 and 71 in his last season with the Red Wings. He obviously had a lot of hockey left in him but I think he just simply didn't know where he stood with the Red Wings anymore so um, that to him felt, made him feel like it was it was time to go it was time to retire but uh, as you know retirement's not really wasn't really Gordy's thing if you've ever heard this story before um, as you can probably tell he missed the game quite a lot he'd only take two seasons off and then he figured out he probably wanted to come back and play. And this time he'd be doing it on his own terms in a brand new league. So stay tuned for that. The third period is up next.
3: I foolishly retired in seriousness for two years. <laughs> I, since I've tried it on several years, but the, uh, in the two years of retirement, I've actually put on about 18 pounds and uh, because I thought I was through, I was gonna enjoy life and to make that comeback. Well you were through, it. you were over 40. Well, I think I was. They told me it was, not I believed it, too, the first couple of weeks. But uh, even the two boys, Marty and Mark, on the way, which was very hot during the month of August in uh, Texas, and uh, with the air conditioning on, we're still frying, and we're driving back home in between double shifts, and uh, they, they were both a little concerned with me because I'd pale right out on them. And then all of a sudden, one day, everything come back, you know, click back, and uh, even the kids, as young as they are, said, uh, it's there, isn't it? And I said, it, it feels good. And from that day on, it was happiness again. To be back playing? Yeah, it, it's always fun being back. And I think a real good, uh, really proof of that matter is now that you see all these old timers, you see the Bobby Goldhams and uh, and all the old gentlemen of the past, they're still playing. And I played with them for two years. And I said, this is ridiculous. I have to pay for my ice time when I could be getting paid. So, <laughs> but. Uh,
0: Hey, welcome to the third period. That interview was uh, Gordy talking about uh, what happened to himself after he retired and then kind of what his decision was to start playing again and uh, how he felt uh, playing along with his uh, with his boys and everything there. So um, I really like that interview to introduce this period because that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Gordy's foray into the next part of his playing career. So as we all know, competition can be a good thing. It can challenge you and sometimes it can even force you into changing for the better. And almost all instances you come out on the other side haven't been better for that competition. In the case of the NHL, one of their biggest challenges that changed them probably for the better came in 1971 with the founding of the World Hockey Association or WHA. The WHA, or as the Rebel League as it would come to be known, would look to bring hockey to markets that the NHL would not dare expand into. But perhaps most of all, the WHA would start to offer compensation for the services of hockey superstars that were fair, uh, with higher salaries um, and no reserve clause, so that players could feel free to negotiate their contract uh, year to year in a fair manner with different teams, not just the ones that had uh, signed them or drafted them. But before I get too deep into the particulars of WHA, I'll stop following that squirrel and I'll bring it back to Gordy because I really want to talk about the WHA in a later segment when we go over, uh, a later episode when we go over the uh, really, really awesome book called Rebel League that is the history of the WHA. So we're going to pick things up with uh, Mr. Hockey in 1973 when a very uh, interesting proposition starts to present itself. So, in at that time, uh, two of his three sons, Mark and Marty, were now playing junior hockey for the Toronto Marlies in the OHL, and both of them were certainly great players, uh, learned a lot from their dad, and they were going to um, have good careers in the NHL if they just stayed the course, but the problem was the rule at the time was that a player needed to be 20 to be drafted by an NHL franchise. So this is another place where the WHA had started to make headway. They decided to make no uh, age minimum for the draft into the WHA. And this right away, uh, with respect to Mark and Marty, puts them in play. Because at the time, in 73, uh, Marty was 19 and Mark was 18 years old. And the WHA was interested in drafting uh, a good player, and especially one with the last name Howe. So where we pick it up with Gordy is Gordy and Colleen his wife are Mark and Marty's agents and Gordy is approached by Doug Harvey who is then the uh, assistant coach with the new with the Houston Arrows and Harvey lets Gordy know that his club is looking very hard to draft Mark so much and so that they used their first round pick on Mark and then surprised Gordy and Colleen by going even further and drafting Marty in the twelfth round of the WHA draft. It was such a big deal that the howboys had been drafted by the WHA that uh, league commissioner Clarence Campbell, at the, or president uh, Clarence Campbell at the time, called Gordy personally to let them know that he didn't want him to go to Houston; uh, that he would like them to uh, stay in the. OHL and be drafted in the NHL because that was probably what was best for them in his opinion but Gordy saw it another way and as he described that phone call he said quote after I hung up the phone I spent the rest of the day full of mixed emotions the NHL had been a fixture in my life for more than a quarter century I owed the league so much that I didn't even want to think about the possibility of turning my back on it added to which I had never thought it was good business to bite the hand that feeds you That said, I thought back to my dad telling us kids that if you don't look out for yourself, no one else would. In the end, our decision came down to what we thought was best for our boys. I called Mr. Campbell back the next day and told him that I couldn't ask Mark and Marty to deny themselves an opportunity that they'd worked so hard for. I wouldn't have wanted my father to ask it of me and I wasn't gonna ask it of them. The decision I told him would be theirs to make. For Houston, the move to, under, to draft underage players wasn't a gimmick. They'd scouted Mark and Marty all year and figured our boys had enough talent to make a difference on the ice. To succeed as a league, the WHA clubs knew that they would need to build teams around young players. Our kids were just the first. As far as Bill Deneen and Doug Harvey were concerned, the hockey side of the business mattered more than having that famous last name. As for me, I harbored the dream that our boys would be playing professional hockey as long as I could remember. So, as you can see, Gordy understands that while the NHL is the more established league, and that was the league that made him famous, he knows that the WHA opportunity is too much for his kids to pass up. So, they've got the course plotted ahead. Uh, Mark and Marty are drafted by the Arrows, and... Uh, they're looking to negotiate their contract uh, contracts with the Arrows. So Gordy and Colleen go in, and uh, they're going back and forth with uh, Bill Dineen. And Gordy keeps having the thought that it would be great to play with his kids, that he feels like he could you know, get back up to playing shape, and it, w- it would be a great thing. So he, in a telephone call out of the blue, really, uh, simply asked Denine what he thought of all three hows playing for Houston, as you can guess the next thing out of denine 's mouth denine 's mouth was, Are you joking when he assured he was when he assured Denine he was not it was a done deal with the arrows, and they were all in, and they all three signed with Houston so what made a forty five year old Gordy who was already considered at the time the best player to want to come back well Gordy's words expounded just by saying simply, the idea of returning to the ice made Colleen apprehensive from the start. At 45, I'd I'd be playing against kids half my age. I also had a list of injuries as long as my arm and hadn't played for a serious serious hockey game in two years. I won't say that I didn't share her concerns, but I told her I always knew I was capable of it when I came into hockey. I'd have to get back into game shape, but I rarely struggled with conditioning. All the miles I'd skated on the choppy outdoor ice in Saskatoon had built a lifetime of strength into my legs. I knew they'd be there for me if I asked. The bigger issue would be come from deeper inside. When I retired in 1971, my heart wasn't in the game the way it needed to be. After two unhappy years away from the ice, I thought... I'd come to realize something that was crucial about myself. I was a hockey player, first, last, and always. The thought of lacing him up in Houston to play alongside my boys made me feel like I was 22 again, and I couldn't wait to get back on the ice. Now, for those of you who don't know what happened, I'll start by saying this. Not like other greats that unretired, Howe came back and was actually able to play and play at a high level. He picked up right where he left off and took it up even probably even a a little bit of a notch his last season in detroit howe scored 52 points in his first season in houston he scored 100 points third best in the league and he won league mvp granted the wha was not the nhl but still you see that how you have to see that how with the benefit of rest and rejuvenation In the form of a new start with his sons, it was just a magical combination. Okay, so then you think to yourself, he was just amped, and there's no way he can do that in any other seasons. That's just an aberration. Wrong. Mr. Hockey went on to play six more seasons after that and scored 90 points in three of those seasons, and he led the Arrows to two AFCO Cups. That's the WHA championship for those of you who are new to this whole WHA thing. I wasn't; It wasn't just the scoring either. Gordy's tough-as-nail persona was still huge. WHA players all knew you didn't want to go into the corner, still didn't want to go in the corner with Gordy, lest you end up getting totally wrecked. Also, it was well known in the WHA that if you messed with one of the younger Howes, the elder one, was down and well able to mess you up. Just imagine a fifteen-year, fifty-year-old Howe demolishing players half his age. It happened. After four seasons with the arrows, like many of the WHA's franchises along the way, they became the arrows became victims of low revenue and chaotic spending uh, that happened so much in the WHA. And the new owners of the arrows decided that they could not afford the house before the 1977-78 season so in 1977 the house signed with the new england whalers where gordy would play three more seasons to include the 1978-80 season when the whalers made the merger into the nhl mr hockey was back in the nhl and the house were the first father and son combo to play together in an nhl game not to mention When Gordy was 52, he finally hung up his skates in 1980 after a 42-point campaign. I challenge anybody to score 42 points when you're 50 years old, much less 52. Just as importantly as his early days in the 1950s, or perhaps even more importantly, the later segments of Gordy's career in Houston and Hartford uh, were central to the myth and legend of Mr. Hockey. To play at such a high level into his fifties, the feat that feat will never be duplicated again. You're never gonna see anybody play that long. Chelios got close, but he didn't get to fifty. Gratzky may have been may have the scoring records that Howie used to own, but the great one will never have the distinction of having the grit and determination and longevity of Mr. Hockey. As he usually puts it best as Mr. Hockey usually puts it best himself, Thinking about his career, he said, my career, though it feels like much more than a collection of numbers. It's playing for the fans and my teammates and all the friendships Colleen and I made over the years. It's being part of something bigger than just myself. It's being on the ice, sweating and bleeding with the boys. It's the wonderful life that hockey allowed me to give my family. It's a game I love. When I'm asked how I was able to play for so long, my answer is always the same. I never stopped loving the game. As the decades passed, my life saw a lot of changes. Everyone's does, but that remained constant. Looking back at it all, and the words I shared with fans in 1959 during my appreciation night, those are the words that keep running through my head. It's a long way from Saskatoon, no one can ask for a better ride. Your idol Gordy Howe passed away
1: yeah. this year, and just a, a huge uh, legend uh, in the
0: game. Uh, you, your careers overlapped as pros for a brief, brief period of time. Mm-hmm. Even though he's a complete other generation, you got to play with Gordy Howe. What was that like?
1: You know, uh, we all get an opportunity, or sometimes you get an opportunity to meet your idols, and sometimes you walk away and go, "Well, oh, it was okay," or that was that was just all right, and. I met Gordie Howe when I was 10, and my dad said, how was it? And I said, you know, he was bigger and nicer and better than I had in my 10-year-old brain. And he was just a real special man. And he was the greatest hockey player who ever lived, and he happened to be the nicest man. We went to his uh, uh, funeral. It was the most surreal thing I'd ever seen. Nine in the morning till 9 p.m. at night, people lined up. And came in and went by his casket for twelve straight hours. Mm-hmm. And it was people from Russia and France and England and of course North America. So he was just something someone that was re- re- very, very special. When you started to play, I think you were seventeen yeah. and you got on the ice with Gordy now. You had met him when you were 10, right. but then so, you're 17 and yeah. you're a player
0: playing against and you're him. actually playing against him. That must have been surreal.
1: I was in the warm-up. I was so excited to play against Gordy Howe, and I thought, wow, this is something really cool and we're skating around in the warm-up getting ready for the game. And every time I went by Gordy, he was winking at me. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. He's getting me excited about the game. And I got back in the locker room and I said to one of the guys, I said, Gordy how's out there winking to me. He goes, no, 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 he's got a blinking problem. He's not winking at you. <laughs> <laughs> First shift, I stole the puck from him and I was going the other way and all of a sudden I felt this stick and he cracked me over the thumb, kind of cracked my thumb. and. He said, "Kid, don't ever take the puck from me again." I said, "No, I never will." <laughs> <That was it. laughs> he just had to teach the new kid yeah, yeah, he how things work. Well.
0: Welcome to the postgame. What you just heard there was an interview on the Conan O'Brien show with Wayne Gretzky talking about Gordie Howe and his passing and uh, just what Gordie Howe meant to Wayne and what it was like to play with him and meet him. And I think one of the coolest things about that entire uh, interview was just how Wayne explains to Conan how meeting Gordie at age 10 was such a treat and that Unlike uh, many people out there, uh, he didn't disappoint. I think that's kind of an interesting uh, way to end things and to start this uh, post-game wrap-up is just to say, hey, Gordy was a great guy, and it came through in everything he did, and it's kind of a really neat when a young kid like Wayne Gretzky can go ahead and acknowledge that right away. So what's the verdict on the book? Well, it's pretty simple. Mr. Hockey is a great hockey story. And it's a great read for any hockey fan. Hopefully after our discussion, you know that Gordie Howe's story is really one of the most essential stories to the entire lore of hockey. How can you measure the players of today without knowing the story of Gordie Howe? I mean, you have to compare him to Gordie. He's he's pretty much the best next to Gretzky. um, But even with Gretzky, it was all about scoring. Uh, With Howe, you had scoring mixed in with that absolute toughness so can you say that Gretzky's the best yeah sure could you say Gordie Howe's the best yeah sure we'll leave that for another time but um, after reading this book you'll never look at any player ever the same again not to mention if you're not much of a reader this isn't easy this isn't easy to the point read there's nothing really behind this one that you have to do you won't find yourself repeating passages or thinking about what does that mean? What is he trying to say there? It's only 299 pages, like I said before, and more importantly, I felt that uh, Howe did a great job of telling all the important stories of his life, not leaving really anything out, but he wasn't really verbose or overbearing, so that makes it, once again, really quick to read, and um, it makes it to where you can um, you know, read it very easily. Also true to his simple Saskatchewan roots, he's he's not setting the world on fire with five dollar words. You won't be worried about the uh, vocabulary. I have to pull out the thesaurus for this one. So if you just want to smile and read something positive about life and about hockey, definitely recommend picking this book up. Uh, you won't be disappointed in that regard, because uh, Gordy Howes was a life well lived and. Um, You'll learn a metric ton of things about hockey and about Gordie Howe in a very quick time if you read the book. So definitely recommend it. So that's really all I got for this episode. Um, If you like what you heard, there'll be plenty more to come, I promise. I really enjoyed doing this, and so I'm definitely going to be doing it again. Um, I ask that you subscribe if you uh, have a minute, or uh, go ahead and hit me up at Twitter at the uh, podcast site at at from the point a h1 or at Danny Lambert 17 for my personal account and I just want to say once again thanks for joining me uh, for this uh, journey through some hockey history and this edition of from the point I hope to catch you again uh, next week as our episode will be uh, transitioning to another Hall of Famer autobiography and that'll be Doug Gilmore Uh, in his book titled Killer. For those of you who don't know, that's his nickname. So until then, stay classy, hockey fans. Appreciate you.